Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Brittany, Clint, Sam, and then I sit down with two journalists who have been investigating Freddie Gray's murder, which is now five years old. My advice is simple this week. It is keep the fight. Stay in the fight. I think we can win. I think that we have a once-in-a-lifetime chance to do it. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So it has been a week, a month, a year. Some days it feels like we've lived an entire year in just a day or a week. Um, but most certainly the last few days in particular have been really heavy for our community, for each of us individually and collectively. And this is a podcast of people who were formed in friendship uh, and fraternity through protest and through this era that we are all continuously trying to fight for freedom and liberation for oppressed people. So we're going to have a slightly different approach today. We're not going to each bring a piece of news. We're going to each talk about the thing that is facing all of us. And you should know that we are recording this on Sunday evening. So between now and the time that you hear it on Tuesday, things may be very different. There may be circumstances and incidents that we will not have known by now, but will be known to us by the time this is released. So just think of that as you listen and know that we are speaking from our hearts. So how are you all feeling? I'm a little overwhelmed. Uh, It is just a lot happening. You know, it's also, and Brittany, we met obviously in the middle of the street. It's my first time ever understanding what it was like to be home during it, right? Because we were there the first time. So when I saw everything happen in Minneapolis, it was like, oh, wow, I'm not, I'm like sort of watching this on the internet in a, in a way that was sort of different. And I did used to live in Minneapolis and I was in the protest there too, but it was a little, it was interesting to sort of watch it. And now it's spread across the country in a similar way that it spread before. And just really, really powerful to see all of the young people on the street. So though overwhelmed in some ways because we're helping people sort of think through solutions and think through how they make sense of this and how we end police violence, I am really encouraged because I've seen people who have never posted about race, people who have never, certainly never posted about the police. I've seen them say and do things that are actually pretty powerful. I'm doing all right. Uh, I am tired like so many of us. I am experiencing a sort of profound sense of exhaustion. I think the, the confluence of the death of so many people at the hands of police, at the hands of vigilante. I think these deaths happening in the midst of a global pandemic that is disproportionately killing black people in America. I think of being in quarantine for three months. I think of the sort of physical and social isolation that creates and the very thing that would create some sort of respite from this sort of sense of despair, being in community, being with people, being physically proximate to them is not possible in the same way. And I'm also, you know, what's different for me now is that I'm a, I'm a parent. Um, 
it's different than what it was five, six years ago. I have a three-year-old, I have a one-year-old, and they are at once respite from everything that is happening in the world and a reminder of why it's so important to build a new one. And so I'm sort of wrestling with the dissonance of that, you know, the stakes have always been high, but I think when you have two small humans who look at you and their mom is their entire world, you just want to make sure the world that you're giving them is something that is better than what we're seeing right now. You know, I, all of those emotions, um, the trauma that has compounded over the years, um, you know, from it seems like since 2014, since the protests in Ferguson, so many different videos, so many different experiences, so many different stories of pain, of loss, of death, of violence, white supremacy, and just compounding over time. And then now it seems like, you know, we're again in this moment with nationwide protests. Every single day you're scrolling on your timeline and it seems like there is another video of the police killing people or brutalizing protesters or running cars into people or, you know, all of these things happening in response to the violence that they committed. And it's a lot, but it's sort of the juxtaposition of despair and hope at the same time. Um, Because like you said, Brittany, uh, this is something that we have learned over these past six years more than we knew in 2014 and 2015. Um, It seems like people who would have never said anything about these issues are feeling like they need to speak up and are speaking in ways that like, I never would have expected them to say um, about issues of racism and white supremacy and police violence. So there's sort of the hope that things have changed in the context and juxtaposed against the videos that provide evidence that they haven't. And it's just all of that combined. Um, it's just a mixture of emotions. But I hope that this time will be different. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with everything that all of you said. Um, like you, Clint, my life is different. And so in 2014, when I was running myself ragged and hardly ever sleeping, I only had myself to worry about. Um, I wasn't married to someone who is just as affected by this, if not more, than I am. And so being sensitive to his needs, being sensitive to not adding baggage and burden to our marriage by wearing myself out, because I do have to think about how I am available to my loved ones differently is just an adjustment in this moment. Because like all of you, I've been pulled in 80 different ways. And the sleep is hard, not just because we're busy, but also because my mind is restless and constantly moving. So even when I lay down, I am not resting. And trying to implement all of those self-care practices that I have been preaching, putting the work down for a bit, making sure that I'm eating on time, making sure um, that I'm at least trying to sleep when I can, and more that those things are being practiced and not just preached. I also, like you, Sam and DeRay, am finding myself equal parts frustrated and hopeful, recognizing that the four names that we've come to know most recently, Amon Arbery, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, George Floyd in Minneapolis, and Tony McDade, a Black trans man who was killed by police in Tallahassee, who far fewer people are talking about. Those four names are on a long, 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 long list that predate all of us, that predate our parents and their parents. As long as the generations of Black folks have lived in this country, that is how long the list is. And I keep wondering and finding frustration in just what the tipping point is and how long the list has to get for us to actually shift transformatively and not incrementally. 
But I also recognize that there are a lot of people and moms and dads and teachers and neighbors who are more ready to approach this moment now than they were in 2014 and 2015. And it is because very intentionally of the labor of black thinkers and artists and writers and activists and academics and researchers that have shifted the societal conversation about this, that have deepened American understanding, not just about police violence, but about systemic racism, that have made people more prepared to respond in this moment in the ways that are more appropriate. I don't think we've reached a critical mass, but most certainly there is more preparation and deeper understanding And I actually think that that's what we want to talk about today, because while we are not experts on everything, we are certainly experts on police violence and systemic racism, both through our practice and our study. And we recognize that many of you come here for information, data, language, history and understanding that you can't get anywhere else. And we feel incredibly responsible to you in this moment to make sure that you are thinking and talking and working through this moment in the most effective ways possible. So why don't we actually just start there? Sam, you are our resident data guru. So much of the research that is out there in the world about what this problem actually is has come from your fingertips. So tell all of us about the data that we need to understand is most relevant in this moment, but we may not know. So, you know, as you said, Brittany, over the past six years, We went from a place where we didn't know how many people were being killed by the police, let alone all of the other forms of police violence in this country, where we didn't know what were the policies and practices that had the strongest evidence of effectiveness at reducing police shootings and other forms of police violence. We didn't really understand the role that police unions and police union contracts played, not just in their rhetoric, not just in the ways in which they were organizing to oppose a given mayor uh, in an election, but also in the ways that they were writing into police union contracts and into legislation provisions that made it almost impossible to hold police accountable. Because of the research that has been done over the past six years, we now have a better understanding of the specific factors that contribute uh, most to this problem and the ways in which policies and practices at every level of government uh, can be implemented to address it. So here are a couple of things. Uh, First and foremost, we know that the use of force standards of police departments matter a great deal, that the departments that have the most restrictive policies on police use of force are the departments that have the lowest rates of police violence. Uh, So what does that mean? That means only 28 of the 100 largest cities in this country have a police department that has a policy banning officers from using chokeholds and strangleholds, the type that killed George Floyd. Only 28 of the 100 largest police departments. But those departments that have that policy are less likely to kill people. And in fact, there's no reason why every single police department can't adopt that policy. We know that police departments and states that have policies and laws in place that require officers to use de-escalation and and require officers to exhaust all available alternatives, including de-escalation and non-lethal force before deadly force is even an option that those police departments are 25% less likely to kill people. We know that police departments should be banning officers in all cases from shooting at moving vehicles. Uh, We know that police departments should be adopting accountability systems that are unencumbered by police union contracts and police officer bill of rights laws that we've now mapped across the country and shown contribute to making it extremely difficult to discipline officers. So in places like San Antonio, uh, 70% of all officers who are fired are rehired because of one line in a contract. 
that's some of the research that we have learned. We've also learned a lot about alternatives to police. Uh, we knew that policing was not an approach that needed to be scaled up and invested in and maintained in this country, that there were far better approaches to deal with issues of conflict and poverty and mental health uh, and substance abuse that shouldn't have been responded to by police. But now we have more research to understand the types of interventions that should be scaled up in their place. We know that there are models like the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, where mental health first responders are responding to the scene instead of police officers, uh, now in one in every five 911 calls. Even the police now are releasing reports, like an LA Sheriff's Department released, saying that if not for the mental health first responders that they had hired as a consequence of the protests, as a consequence of the demand for reducing police violence across the country, if not for those mental health first responders, programs. In their reports, they say they would have shot multiple people that they did not shoot because those mental health responders were on the scene, that they would have used force in 400 incidents in a given year, uh, but they did not because there was a mental health responder team uh, that responded to the scene instead. So there are policies, there are programs that have begun to be scaled up in some places, clearly not enough places to make a huge difference across the board in this country, but in the places that they have been scaled up, predominantly in some of the largest cities in the country. We have seen reductions in police violence since 2014. In fact, uh, we've seen in the 30 largest cities, because of the implementation of stricter use of force standards, because of the implementation of stronger community oversight boards and, and processes that made it easier to discipline officers instead of harder, uh, because of the intervention of the Department of Justice, which we know now those interventions are associated with a 20 to 30 percent reduction in police shootings. Over that time period, the largest cities in this country have had a 30% reduction in police shootings. So we know that there are things that have saved lives that folks have organized and fought for uh, and taken to the streets for uh, that have actually played a role in reducing police violence, but they haven't done enough uh, because they have yet to be implemented across the board, because they have yet to be implemented at scale, uh, because they have yet to be matched with state and federal legislation. Uh, and those are the types of things that we need to build on that we need to continue to maintain uh, and expand upon in order to get to a place where we can end police violence in this country. So those are a couple of policies. Uh, we also now know some of the specific legislative language associated with those policies. So we don't have to invent things from scratch. Uh, we have model use of force language at useofforceproject.org. We have model language around police union contracts. If you're a state legislator, you can introduce legislation that bans collective bargaining agreements between police and cities from including language that affects investigations and police officer misconduct records. Uh, so there are a set of things that we know. There's a set of legislative language that can be implemented right now that can make a difference. It's all about building the pressure so that we can overcome this lack of action, the lack of political will, not only at the city and state level, but also in Congress uh, to take comprehensive action across the board to deal with this issue. So from the data to the art, Clint, you have steeped yourself in the history of precisely what we are dealing with. And you not only teach about it, you write about it, you paint pictures for people that touch them in ways that they are compelled not just to feel, but to act. So what is the history that is relevant in this moment? What are some of the books people maybe should read? And how is art um, not only a force for justice, but a force for healing? I think it's really important, and, and we talk about this often, but it is so important to consider what has happened in Minneapolis, what has happened in Louisville, what has happened across the country, not as isolated 
contemporary incidents, but instead as incidents that are reflective of a large, much longer intergenerational lineage of trauma, lineage of policy, lineage of plunder in communities that has made it so that people feel as if this incident is reflective of experiences that they and their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents have had in these communities for a long time. So, for example, we can't, it is impossible for us to disentangle what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis from the fact that despite Minneapolis's reputation for as being this sort of bastion of prosperity and progressive politics, it has the lowest rate of home ownership among African-American families in the entire country, right? And so that fact shapes and is shaped by a history of redlining, a history of housing covenants, policy that has made it so that the city is profoundly segregated. And we know that the way that hypersegregation operates based on you know, sociologists and based on historians is that it makes it so that people have limited opportunities for upward mobility. It makes it so that people don't have access to healthcare. It makes it so that people don't have access to uh, jobs outside of the context of low-wage jobs. It makes it so that people are living in food insecure communities. It makes it so that the uh, police are oversaturated in those communities and are responding to and engaging with those communities in ways that are not reflective of attempts to protect them, but instead attempts to exploit them and harass them. And so all of these things, the confluence of all of these things come together to create this boiler moment in which, you know, what has happened to George Floyd is not simply about George Floyd. It is about what has been taken away from this community for a long, long, long time. And as the resident academic, I can give a few suggestions for books that might be helpful for folks um, in understanding how history has shaped the contemporary landscape of inequality. Stamp from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi, The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh by Dana Ramey Berry, uh, White Rage by Carol Anderson, The Color of Money by Mercer Badaran, Evicted, Matthew Desmond, Fear Itself, Ira Katz Nelson, Reconstruction, Eric Foner, uh, The Color of Law, Richard Rothstein. The list goes on and on, but I think those are a few that I just pulled off my bookshelf that have been really formative for, for me in helping to understand the way that different types of history and policy have shaped this country. And, and with regard to the art, you know, there's a reason that so many of our timelines are flooded with poems and are flooded with people singing songs, and that protests are filled with, with music and drums and horns. It is because art is and has always been the thing that sustains us. It is the thing that gives us language that we don't otherwise have the vocabulary for. It is the thing that connects people around this common moment, this common feeling, this common melody. And I think, you know, as a, as a poet, as an artist, you know, what I'm experiencing is I feel gratitude that people are finding solace in my work. I also feel distressed that my work and the work of so many of my friends and colleagues and peers is as relevant as, as it was when we wrote so much of this five, six years ago. And I think that is another manifestation of a sort of cognitive dissonance we're experiencing where I don't want these poems about police violence to be relevant anymore. I don't want these poems about the feelings of what conversation am I going to have with my son when he gets older about how to navigate a world that is taught to fear him. I don't want to have to have those poems be relevant anymore. What I want them is to be these time capsules of moments that are no longer relevant, but they continue to be relevant. And so, you know, for, as artists, I know that all of us are careful because we never want to seem exploitative of a moment, right, where we are trying to lift our arts or our brand at the expense of, or based on the the death of 
black people. And so, you know, if, I think if people come to the work and find meaning and solace in that, we're appreciative. Um, but I think all of us would be more appreciative of creating a world in which it's not necessary to create such art. And we could write poems about things that didn't have to do with black people dying. So, DeRay, my friend who I met at that quick trip on West Florissant Avenue, we are now in the midst of a conversation where we are rooted in the data of this problem. We are rooted in exactly how we got here and how we can see and sing our way through it. But some people are trying to figure out how to take action. Some of those actions may be reaching out to their friends and loved ones who are Black, and they're trying to figure out what to say, what not to say, um, how to actually be of support. So that's one question. And the other question is, if people are deciding to go out to the place where you and I met, out onto the streets in protest, how do they do that in a way that actually moves the work of Black liberation forward instead of stifle it? Yeah, when I think about one of the core actions, this is one that I think a lot of people take for granted. I think that we we learned not to take this for granted when we were in the street just because we couldn't, but it is how we tell the story about what's happening with the police. So when I think about some of the data, too, about how we tell that story, I'm reminded that the police have killed more people, not less, since the protests in 2014. I'm reminded that... 2019 is the first year where Black people are more afraid of being killed by a police officer than being killed by community violence. And I'm reminded that a third of all the people killed by a stranger are killed by the police. And I start here because there are people who said to us, and Brittany, you remember this, that's a niche issue. Why didn't you focus on prisons and jails? Like, this is a, you guys are too narrow in your approach. And my response to those people every time is name all the ways you get to prison and jail that don't include the police, Right. So, like, I think part of it is, like, how do we ground for people what is happening and that we can live in a world where the police don't kill people, that the best primary or often response to trauma or people violating norms shouldn't have to be the police. Uh, and then I think about, like, what people can do. You know, I really do believe that pushing on the policy front, that, like, changing the use of force policies is a big deal, that, like, people can do that and they can go to useofforceproject.org to do that. People should go stand in the street, you know, if that is what you want to do, then like you should do that. My advice to you is make sure your phone is charged. The worst is when you go out and your phone's not charged. I will also say, Brittany, I, I didn't tell you this. I went out, it was amateur hour the other day. I forgot to use the bathroom before I went outside. Lord, whew. Ooh, it was like, I'm somebody like, was rusty. Oh, it was rusty this. Yeah. So, so make sure that did you, you go out in a mask though. I did go out in a mask, had that together. Uh, make sure that you take like some light snacks. I always think about like, what do I want to run in or not? So if you don't, you got to make sure you like don't have no boots on, no sandals, like none of that stuff. If you have to run, you need to make sure uh, that you have whatever you need to be able to do that well. Uh, but when I think about this too, I'm mindful that there are some people who still saw the latest killing and they thought that, you know what, this was a bad officer that this was like something really wrong with this one guy and da 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 is that we need to remember that the system will continue to produce this same action over and over and over unless we do something fundamentally different. So we're offering Campaign Zero as a solution and the Use of Force Project, like these projects that came out of this initiative we started in 2015, because one of the reasons why we stepped back is that we looked at the data and we were like, the goal can't be just to withstand the trauma. The goal has to be to end it. And I do think that we might be set up for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to end it. That, like, there seems to be a consensus right now about this is a terror. There are people, like reporters even, who are being targeted by the police, and they never normally do things about sort of pushing back on police power, but, but we see it. 
Don't go anywhere. More Potting the People's coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Goodyear Auto Service takes pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. With BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. So for my part... um. As you said, DeRay, how we talk about these things is critically important. And I think it's important for two reasons. One, because it influences how we act. 
how we discuss things will shift how we understand them and how we understand them will impact the actions that we take because of them. But also because if you have found yourself compelled and convicted around this issue, especially if you are not black, but for all people, you may be the only ambassador of this cause that the folks in your circle of influence know. So how you talk about it can literally be the difference between whether they get on board or whether they think that this is not for them. I remember leading a teaching organization and we would talk to our teachers all the time about how to talk about what they do when they go home for the first holiday in their first year of teaching. We were working in community and solidarity with students and families in low-income neighborhoods, almost all children of color or first-generation American. And we found ourselves wanting to make sure that our teachers, as ambassadors of the communities that they served and were a part of, were talking about our communities in ways that were respectful, accurate, and had context. And that's the reason why we wanted to make sure that we were bringing all of our expertise to bear in this conversation so that as ambassadors, you are choosing the right context, you are leveraging the accurate data, you are making sure the history is known, you are talking about these things in ways that not only affect your actions but affect others because language really does matter. We decided to call Campaign Zero Campaign Zero because we believe we can live in a world where the police don't kill people. It's not campaign half. It's not campaign 10%. It's not campaign fewer. Because if we are going to actually engage in the behavior and take the stance of radical imagination here, then we have to get all the way to zero. And every single time we say this to people, especially in America, they will say, well, no, the police have to kill somebody. But if you take a look at what the data suggests, that there are lots of countries around the world where this is actually not the case. So if it can be imagined elsewhere, it can certainly be imagined here. We have to be careful about how we talk about what's happening on the streets. We use the word rebellion or uprising and not riots. Why? Because first of all, Dr. King said that a riot is the language of the unheard. So it's not actually about the response, but rather concerning ourselves with the conditions that created the response in the first place. And when you talk about something as a rebellion or an uprising, that allows us to do that. That allows us to differentiate between what is violence and what is property damage. Because someone standing in front of a police officer who is understandably and justifiably angry, but without provocation is shot with a rubber bullet or tear gassed, that is violence. Property damage is what happens to merchandise that is replaceable because it's covered by insurance. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Amon Arbery, they are not replaceable. We have to make sure that we're making the distinction to help people understand. DeRay, as you already said, we talk about these things in ways that are systemic and not individual. We always say that we don't let the systems off the hook. And we say this because this is not about bad apples. This is about an entire bad bushel because the roots of this whole thing are rotten. We have to recognize that if we're not letting systems off the hook, then we're not letting ourselves off the hook either because we create and perpetuate those systems, especially if you are white or are not black. I would caution everyone to beware of outlets or websites 
that don't require you to actually interrogate and change your own behavior that let you get off alone with making a contribution or making a phone call. That's not actually going to change a system. That is a momentary action that does not actually require you to change yourself. We talk about being anti-Black and not just racist. Racism is deep. It is insidious. It is a cancer in America. And anti-Blackness is a particular strain within that that continues to impact Black people across generations. We're recording this on the anniversary of the massacre on Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That had everything to do with the fact that Black people had the audacity to have property and not be property. That is specific to anti-Blackness. And so many of the things we are dealing with right now are specific to that strain of systemic racism. Finally, we talk about solidarity and not charity. There are things that we have to recognize require us to approach the whole and not just a piece. Look, charity is good and it has its place, but charity is feeding hungry people and getting together with your friends and family and making those peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, putting them in the bag and serving them to 500 folks. Solidarity is concerning yourself with why those people were hungry in the first place and actually following their lead, engaging and organizing with them to ensure that there are no food deserts in their neighborhoods, to ensure that the folks who are living in those neighborhoods can afford good produce, to make sure that once a good store with good produce comes into town, that they're not suddenly gentrified out of their own neighborhoods. That's the difference. We have to engage in solidarity and not charity. This language matters for our own understandings, our own actions, and how we are ambassadors for the cause of uprooting systemic racism and systemic oppression in America. The difference between solidarity and charity also affects how you protest. Because if you decide to go out onto the street, you should be making sure that you are not putting Black people in danger by your actions, but that you are following the lead of the Black organizers and activists who have been doing this a long time. If you're standing in solidarity with them, you are humble enough to follow their lead. So before we close, two really important points. One, in the show notes of today's episode, there's information about immediate action that you could take. You should take these actions, you should share them with others, and you should think of those actions not as an ending point, but as a starting point. Lastly, I want to make sure everyone has the chance to hear from us. What's the one thing you want to make sure folks walk away with from this conversation? Mine is that we can win. We can definitely win. That this is, to sort of piggyback off what uh, what Clint said, is that I I think we can do this in our lifetime. That like when Clint's kids are older, we will be like, whew, remember at one of y'all birthdays, we was up here talking about the police. You don't even remember that world because we made it better. That like, I really do think that this is something that like, we have a chance to really figure out. We think about building all the work from the generations that came before us. We have tools they didn't have. We have the ability to organize and get together and spread information in ways they didn't have. Like, I really do think that there is a moment that might not be too long, but the moment is here now where like we could actually change the outcomes in a dramatic way that could last for a lifetime. And I am excited to be a part of it. I think it is overwhelming at some points to be a part of that moment, but like I really, really do think we can do this. I would just reiterate that the reason one part of Minneapolis looks one way and another part of Minneapolis looks another way, the reason one part of Louisville looks one way, the other part of Louisville looks another way, the reason one part of D.C. looks one way, another part of D.C. looks another way, New Orleans, Detroit, Chicago, New York, you name a city, this is the case there. The reason parts of these cities look one way and other parts of these cities look another way is not because of the people in those communities. It is not because of cultural deficits. It is not because of genetic inferiority. It is not because 
of any personal feelings. It is the result of things that have been done to those communities generation after generation after generation after generation. And that but for the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance, any of us could find ourselves in a position in which we were born into a world, into a community, into a body, into a set of circumstances that put our life on a fundamentally different trajectory. And I think that we all have to operate with a level of empathy and a level of humility to recognize that the opportunities that many of us have, the opportunities that many people have, are not simply because of their own doing. It's because you were born into a set of circumstances that afforded you opportunities that other people will never get. And that that is not to say that you don't work hard. It's not to say that you have not worked hard to put yourself in that position. But it is to say that many folks were born into positions where their hard work could manifest itself in a certain way. And other folks were born into positions where they could work equally as hard or harder. And that that hard work would not reap the same benefits because of the conditions they were born into due to no fault to their own. You know, I also believe that we can win and I believe that we have a roadmap for how to get there. I believe we have the organizing uh, and connectedness with one another and platforms that we didn't, we weren't able to use before. Uh, we have a moment where some of the people who like, I never thought would be making statements opposing police violence, even some police chiefs have come out making statements against police violence. There is this moment where we can build a coalition with consensus around a set of solutions that can fundamentally change the way in which communities experience uh, and are impacted by systems and structures so that they no longer cause harm but instead do good. Uh, we can build those systems and structures. We can rebuild this nation and we can do it in a way that fundamentally ends police violence and systematic racism and now is the time to do it. So I think that the most important thing for me to walk away with, and I hope that it works for some other people too, is to remember that in order for us to win, because we absolutely can and we will, we have to root ourselves in what we stand for and not just what we stand against. This week, I finally very publicly told the full version of a story that I had been telling for a long time about an assault I experienced when I was in high school when I was spit at by a schoolmate of mine who was older, a white male, and uh, was particularly predisposed to his opposition of my diversity and equity work, even at that age. And I remember being completely stunned in a silence and finally started to tell the story about five years ago, actually, when I went back to high school during the Ferguson uprising, because they asked me to come and talk about what I had seen but I never, ever said his name. I finally said his name this week um, because he happens to be a reporter for Fox News who was chased away by protesters at the White House who did not believe that he was going to tell an accurate story. And I did that not um, to do anything to him, but rather to reclaim fully my own power. But really, that moment was a critical lesson for me because... I decided what I was going to stand for and not to be consumed by what had happened to me or what I was standing against. And I will read you a little bit of what I wrote about that. I said, my why will forever remain the love I have for my people and my absolute soul-consuming obsession with justice. Justice is divine ordinance. It is what Cornel West calls what love looks like in public. I decided at 15 not to obsess over the destruction I stand against. I obsess about what I stand for about the wildest dreams of my ancestors, about radical imagination, about a freedom so thick it cannot be destroyed, about a blackness so beautiful it cannot be erased. As the old poem says, he tried to bury me, but he did not know I was a seed. 
They will try to bury us. So let's be seeds. Thanks, y'all. Today, I'm talking with Justine Barron and Amelia McDonald-Perry. Their work in local journalism and the Suter Files site has allowed them to spend the last five years tracking Freddie Gray's murder by police in Baltimore. I learned so much in this conversation, and this is as relevant today as it's ever been. Justine and Amelia, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having us. Now, I am excited to talk to you uh, because you are doing incredible work around both the place I live and my hometown, Baltimore. Uh, can we start talking about like how you got interested in covering issues related to justice in Baltimore? Like, What does that look like for you? Why Baltimore? Uh, what's the connection? Honestly, this landed in our laps. Uh, Amelia was covering Adnan Syed. Uh, she was the editor-in-chief of the Frisky and writing for Rolling Stone about crime. Um, I was also writing about serial-related stuff and true crime podcasts. So some of the producers associated with Undisclosed, they just liked our work. We were both avidly interested in criminal justice issues, but we weren't necessarily only specifically focused on Baltimore until we got involved in Freddie Gray. And we were asked to look into it. We didn't know each other, but we were just very passionate and we could tell that there was something up with this story. And then, you know, through the development of sources, getting to know people in the community, seeing the Freddie Gray case play out again and again with Keith Davis Jr., with Sean Souter, the same patterns, the same cover-ups, we both just became kind of hooked you know, uh, relocated to Baltimore at different times, and it's now just, you know, a passion of ours, uh, issues of criminal justice in Baltimore. I feel like if you, you know, once you start looking at Baltimore, it is incredibly difficult to look away. Um, I mean, it was funny when I, I moved down here about a little over a year ago, and when I announced, I lived in New York, and when I told people I was leaving and I was finally, I was going to move to Baltimore, they were like, oh, I thought you already lived there. Because I talk about it so much. So I don't know. The city gets to you. And I I grew up in Maryland um, outside of D.C., but I went to college in Baltimore. um, And it is a very special place. I mean, especially for people outside of D.C., a lot of us end up in Baltimore at some point because we feel like outsiders in D.C. culture. And Baltimore is very welcoming for weirdos, uh, different people, leftists. um, And that's another thing that draws me to the city. Let us talk about uh, the case that brings you here, which is Freddie Gray. Uh, I have so many questions, so I'm going to try and, like, you know, just ask everything. Because, you know, since I have experts, I want to, like, use our time wisely. But I'll just start broadly and say, uh, what have you learned about Freddie Gray's death that we didn't know uh, when he was killed that we should be talking about now? And then we'll just use this as, like, a launch pad for the rest because I have a lot. Um. You know, Freddie Gray uh, was put into a coma in police custody, and the first thing we learned was from a viral video from Kevin Moore that he was arrested at Gilmore Homes, and he was screaming while dragging his legs being loaded into a van. Um, Then he ended up in a coma almost an hour later. So police withheld a lot of details that first week while he was in the hospital, and witnesses were sort of talking about seeing different things, but nothing quite necessarily pointed to what killed him, except that there was a heavy set officer leaning on his um, back, like upper back on the video. 
Then finally, Freddie Gray died a week later. And the very next morning, police, you know, told us everything. They had a whole story ready to go. I guess they just, you know, needed him to not be alive anymore, which was they said that the van had taken all of these different stops that morning. They had checked on him. He was fine, like a little tired. He was um, acting crazy, banging around, and but he hadn't been seatbelted. And they picked up another prisoner, but shrug, they didn't really know how he died and they would get to the bottom of it. It was definitely presented as a huge mystery for sure. Yes. And and media played up the mystery too. Everybody was sort of invested in this being a mystery. And then the theory came out of the autopsy, which was that he had been thrown because his injury was a specific injury that only happens if you kind of go head first into something with force that he must have, it must've been like from the van making a wide turn or driving roughly. So that's what we were told happened. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I think that was interesting about the Kevin Moore video is that it seemed very clear um, that, you know, Freddie was in some sort of pain with his back and neck. Um, I remember there's a portion of the video where he's being loaded into the van and, and his neck is at a weird sort of angle. And, you know, we came to find out after he died that his neck had been broken. And so, you know, the two things seemed to be sort of obvious in a way. Um, they must have broken his neck there and that's how he died. Um, and, it, and the idea that these two things weren't connected and that he had broken his neck some other way seemed sort of ludicrous. Um, and there was, you know, some reports in the media of talking to witnesses um, who saw things like tasing, who saw him obviously in a leg lace, who said that he was being beaten. But the police department was very much rushing to sort of put this on something else, like to not blame a specific officer, but it was on some sort of weird circumstance in this van. And so what I did is when I came down to Baltimore, I, I just started knocking on doors and asking people if they saw anything that day. Um, I tracked down certain witnesses that I'd already talked to um, the press or had talked to police. And what I found was, is there were a lot of people who saw very specific things that seemed to match what his injury was. And yet they had not been called to testify at the trials, for example, by Marilyn Mosby's office. And one of the people I met was a woman named Jacqueline Jackson, who lived at a housing project right across the street from Gilmore Homes. And her kitchen window faced North Mount Street, which is the street where the van after it left the arrest site pulled around the corner and just went a block away and stopped. And that's where they pulled Freddie out of the van. He was already handcuffed and they put leg shackles on him. And according to her, she had a very, very clear memory. It honestly traumatized her of seeing them throw him headfirst into the back of the van, one of those vans that has a partition. So it's a very narrow little space. They threw him headfirst. He didn't make it the full way. She heard his head hit the wall. She heard a thump from her kitchen window. And she said he went completely silent after that and that the officers looked like, she said the word scared, like they had realized something had happened. And um, I had spent some time also talking to a neurologist, somebody who um, specializes in the exact kind of neck injury that Freddie had, which was a jump facet fracture. Um, basically, one of the vertebrae in his neck jumped over the other one and specifically affected the diaphragm. So 
uh, the reason why he was in a coma essentially is because he stopped getting oxygen to his brain. And in talking to him, you know, I sort of, I asked him, you know, is it possible that this is the kind of injury that could have happened from being thrown headfirst into the van? And he said, yes, it's the same sort of premise as a diving accident injury, uh, which is what the medical examiner had kind of described it as. And the problem is, is that nobody had ever talked to Jacqueline Jackson, although she did have somebody from the state's attorney's office visit her and tell her that what she saw did not happen. And I also found another witness who saw something similar. Um, and so that, to me, started to make a lot more sense than the theory that was being presented at the trial, which is that the van driver gave him a rough ride. There was no footage of that. And that Freddie's injury occurred when he made a wide right turn. <laughs> there was a video that captured that, but it wasn't, you know, he was driving slow. It seemed just, it wasn't impossible, but it seemed rather implausible given what other people, witnesses had actually seen happen before that. And then recently, you know, uh, we were able to get a hold of some, uh, quite a bit of previously unreleased evidence and it really, the witness statements that were in there that had never been disclosed completely corroborated things I'd been hearing. Yeah, there were nine witnesses who described the exact same thing to both the police and the prosecutors within hours and days of Freddie Gray's arrest, thrown headfirst, face down. And there is a tiny bit of video of stop two you know, where this happened that show that Brandon Ross took that shows him just motionless and silent. If the police had had their way, we, we nobody would have ever heard of stop two. Um, and they just kept going on television saying that witnesses weren't coming forward and there were no statements of any force. So now we know that in fact, both sides had this story from day one. And then I think the last piece of it is that once we had this working theory, we could see how much of the cover up of video evidence, audio evidence, planting of evidence, like how much took shape right after that moment when he was thrown headfirst. It's kind of also important to note that the investigation into what happened to Freddie Gray was really screwed from the jump, as it so often is in cases like this, because the police, first of all, who were involved definitely were trying to cover their tracks. They had a, they, I believe they definitely knew that something was wrong with him. And then the actual investigation, the team that within the police department at that time was called the force investigation team, they were tasked with investigating um, any uses of force. So investigating the officers who use force and determining whether or not it was necessary. That team, well, to start, put one of the witnessing officers in charge as the uh, primary officer. So he was the one kind of guiding investigators through the sort of story of the day. And you know, there was just softball interviews, um, as we were saying, you know, sort of dismissing witnesses wholesale. And what this presentation from the police department, though, to the public and to the media was that they were really being transparent. But the transparency was actually a distraction from what was really going on. Um, it was really quite a performance. And it worked because for a very, very long time. And I think to many people still, people either believe they don't know what happened to Freddie Gray or they think it was a rough ride. And there's just really no evidence to support that. But there is evidence that he was thrown headfirst into the van near where he was arrested and that plenty of witnesses saw it. Talk to us about the prosecution, sort of what went wrong. You talked about some of the witness statements not making it. Like, do you think that Mosby just didn't, was she in over her head? Was the team not good? Were they in cahoots with the police? Like, so what happened there? 
And the second bucket is, you know, I didn't know until I read your piece, I didn't realize that there was a trove of unreleased data that the Sun had foyed and put on the website and they took off. And I'd love to know why you think they took it off and like what was there that was so interesting and important. Well, just to address the second part really fast, I would love to talk, we, we should come back to the media question in depth. But as for them putting it up and taking it down, it's just because they switched servers and so they didn't move everything. Um, they did end up after my article, like putting it back up. And what was released was really partial as we wrote about. It didn't include the witnesses. It was part of what Amelia is saying, that illusion of transparency, like we'll give you a lot of documents and a lot of videos, but we're going to leave out what really matters. Um, in terms of the state's attorney's office, we knew that they had you know, presented such a poor case. They had no evidence. They were avoiding witnesses. They weren't pressing anyone hard. Was it incompetence or was it, you know, complicity? It was a new team. Marilyn Mosey was brand new. She had never tried any case like that. And she put uh, her top two people, Michael Schatzel and Janice Bledsoe, were not homicide prosecutors. They had never done that. And they sort of took charge of it they were running this brand new, gigantic, huge department, and they personally took charge of the case, you know, like really micromanaging it. Um, even the investigation period, you know, Jan Bledsoe was micromanaging that investigation, you know, so-called investigation, while kind of shutting out the experienced homicide prosecutors. And um, after the podcast, you know, these were a lot of questions in the podcast. You know, we were able to show it was not a good case. And now, of course, we know that their own investigators had heard about him being thrown head first. But after the podcast, we got a hold of the notes from their office, which were part of the discovery file, because they claimed to have done an independent investigation in court. They were told they had to present it. And it was literally just scribbled handwritten notes. But it revealed that they knew about Stop 2. They knew he'd been thrown in head first. And there was a discussion on the 21st, which is the day after the autopsy had started. So, you know, they, they do the medical exam of the body for a day or so. And then they sort of need time to process all the information, the medical examiner's office. So this has just started. This process has just started. He just died. And the state's attorney's office was having meetings with the city solicitor's office. And Billy Murphy, the Freddie Gray family attorney, and some of the points that were brought up in the meeting were a rough ride theory that he was thrown around in the van. They hadn't even interviewed all of the cops that were at the scene yet, let alone the medics. And they were talking about a settlement with rules, a gag order. So this is, to me, strong evidence that it was more than just inexperience and incompetence or that they got, um, you know, Mosby and her people would probably say at this point, you know, revealed with all the evidence we have, well, we got snowed. We didn't know the police were hiding, but this was their office leading the effort to frame the story this way. And then suppressing witness statements and not including them at court. If you may recall, Brandon Ross, Freddie's very good friend who was a witness to everything he was in court. The first trial, he was sobbing, very emotional. And then suddenly he was locked up, very suspicious charges. And then he was appearing in court in an orange jumpsuit, very, very limited information that he was giving, not talking about Freddie being thrown head first. 
So I think the state's attorney's office is incredibly responsible for where the story went wrong. And they may have had the best motive, which is this is the only way we can stop the riot, if you could call that a good motive. The state's case was largely based on the uh, medical examiner's testimony about the type of injury he had and when it had to have occurred. So as Justine says, you know, they do a physical autopsy. But then there is also the sort of context in which somebody dies, right? That helps you sort of determine what happened there. And so that information is generally supplied by the police. And oftentimes, if there's witness statements that are going to be helpful, those are provided, that kind of thing. Well, in this case, the medical examiner was given just statements from the officers who were actually involved in Freddie Gray's arrest, and that includes some of the witnessing officers as well. They were given no statements from any of the civilian witnesses. And so essentially what happened is that the officers were allowed to dictate the circumstances in which Freddie Gray sustained this fatal injury. And key above that is that many of them discussed in their interviews, they made sure to sort of talk about how at the second stop, Freddie was making the van shake after they put him back inside. You know, really emphasizing this, the point being that Freddie was fine when they shut those doors. He was fine when the van left that stop. And those statements were all provided to the medical examiner by the state's attorney's office, not by the detectives, but by the state's attorney's office. And then, you know, later at trial, you know, they even show some of the surveillance footage from that stop. And they even point out the fact that the van actually is not shaking at all. Um, So that had a very big influence on the medical examiner, ultimately determining that he had to have been injured in the van sometime after stop two. And that appears to be a very coordinated effort of hiding what actually happened at that stop. So I would say that the state attorney's office was complicit. I mean, I, I think that it's very, very clear that they were, from the very, very beginning, trying to figure out how to make this go away. You know, there had already been some protests out in front of the Western District Station, but things were really starting to grow. People were angry, as they should have been. And it seems very much to me like Mosby's office was, from the jump, looking to put a damper on any protests. And the way to do that, I think she ultimately decided, was to charge all six officers, which certainly made a splash. I mean, I remember when it happened and I was like, wow, holy crap. Good for her. That's amazing. And now I feel very differently about that. Can you explain for people the difference between what an autopsy is and what the medical examiner does? Or like, are they one and the same? Like, can you just help us sort of understand the terms and then go back in to talk about why the medical examiner, like why he is a central figure in this and not just an ancillary figure? Yeah, sure. The medical examiner performs the autopsy. And then the autopsy is sort of physical in nature. And then there's an autopsy report, which usually comes out later. And this process was really dissected in court. It was really the defense's best argument, which is they put the medical examiner on the stand. It was a woman. And they really dug into her process. And I have to say it was a mess. They didn't even dig in as much as they could have because they had to protect their own officers. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence uh, in, in the state's attorney's notes and even in Marilyn Mosby's own speeches that they rushed the medical exam, you know, her report to get it out in time for her to for Mosby to announce charges and for them to avoid more rioting because there was a big planned protest right after the charges were announced. Um, the autopsy is 
report is so interesting because typically an autopsy report, and even the ones by this same medical examiner, is medical. It focuses on the body, and then there's determinations as to cause and manner of death that is usually a few paragraphs at most, and it sort of says, okay, it's either a homicide, a suicide, undetermined, that kind of thing, and then it says when and how that happened. But maybe because of the political nature of this, that part of it was pages long, where she got into every stop and everything that was happened and how his legs were shackled at stop two. And what, what we know now, because right now, what we didn't have even during the podcast, we have all of the statements the officers gave that day and a couple of them later. And they were not consistent at all. If the medical examiner was really telling the truth, she would have said, well, this officer said this happened here, but that officer said that happened here. And in particular, the lieutenant was really pushing the van shaking story and that Freddie was banging his own head while the door was closed. No physical evidence, no witnesses. They couldn't have seen it. And it was such an important story because it was on all of the documents that day, like the investigators' first day documents, they, they had sort of all decided that that would be the story. He, he got crazy and he hurt himself. But when the autopsy was done, that couldn't be supported. So they sort of shifted to the rough ride theory. But the autopsy report itself, it's like she sort of tried to piece together tiny bits of video, various statements that didn't add up, and create a narrative that helped the state's attorneys sell the case. I mean, I don't know if that's malpractice. It's just, it's just a very interesting process. And she got reamed on the stand for how weird it was and how she didn't have all the information. I didn't realize that there were statements that he had been tased. Can you talk about that? I don't know why. I don't know if I just missed that the first go round. I think it's something that they tried to push out of the story as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, you can actually hear Kevin Moore say that on um, his video that he filmed. And in his statement to police, he was upstairs in, in his apartment at Gilmore Homes and a friend let him know what was happening and he could hear Freddie screaming outside and he could actually hear, you know, that crackle of the taser. I mean, it's a very distinctive sound. And there were a number of people who not only heard the sound of the taser, but also saw uh, the prongs on his leg. And, you know, the police department, they at one point when they gave a press conference, they said that there was no evidence of tasing. But I was looking at one of the things I, I noticed when I, we were doing the podcast is I was looking at pictures of Freddie that were taken at the hospital on the day he was injured. And you could see he had a bare, his legs were bare. And I saw immediately below his knee what looked to be the sort of dual, um, they're two little circles basically side by side. It's like a, a clear sign of, of a taser. Now, that's what it looked like to me. I sort of obsessed over it. Um, I don't know whether or not that those were faded by the time the autopsy happened and she wouldn't have been able to see them. But they, to me, they looked exactly like taser marks. And they were in the area we learned that Kevin Moore had seen the prongs hanging. Another thing that's really interesting is that one of the officers, Garrett Miller, had said that he did pull out his taser at the very, very tail end of the foot chase that preceded Freddie being arrested. 
And he describes in his interview about how he yelled at one point, taser, 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 to warn Freddy, but that he didn't end up deploying it. Well, if you go on YouTube, actually, you can find plenty of videos of officers sort of demonstrating uh, proper taser use behavior. And one of the things that they often do is yell taser, 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 not to warn the person who you're thinking about tasing, but to warn all the other officers that may be around that you are about to deploy your taser, that you're going to do it. So I have always sort of thought that that was a kind of obvious sign that actually he was tased. They just covered it up. What can we do now, right? So you have uncovered things that, frankly, people should have uncovered when this was happening. Can officers be retried? Is there like systemic things that you would push for inside the police department? How do we make sure this doesn't happen again in Baltimore? And I know that you're journalists, so like you're not an activist, but you've done so much work in this space. And I have to believe that you've seen the inside of the way systems work because of this. And I just I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. I mean, I'm a big believer in activist journalism and I don't mind when people call me that. Um, if that means I have a take on something as a human being and I'm upfront about my opinions, then so be it. I am of the opinion that this has happened again in, in certain ways. I think that Keith Davis Jr.'s case is a classic example of of somebody being uh, utterly railroaded by both the police department and the state's attorney's office in a way that I believe probably would have happened to Freddie if he had not died. I think that very little has changed. You know, they got rid of of the FIT um, team, which was the ones who did the, the investigation, but they've just renamed it uh, CERT, <laughs> uh, just another new acronym. And all of the officers who were charged uh, are all still employed by the department. I think only one or two of them is actually still on the street, at least. But, you know, Brian Rice, the lieutenant, is working, you know, for the sort of the evidence, I think, for ECU now, which that doesn't make me comfortable. As for what to do, I would, l I don't trust the department to do anything. So like, I can't be like, I want them to reinvestigate it. I mean, and same with the state's attorney's office. I would love to see this get a lot more attention nationally. Um, and I would like to see the people who were really sort of in charge of orchestrating this whole thing held accountable. One of the reasons that we run into issues like Freddie Gray unfolding the way it did with no accountability, you know, witnesses crying out to reporters and then reporters saying, wait, officials say it's something else, so I'm going to go with them, has to do with these divisions that we make between journalism and activism. They're kind of designed to uphold power to keep, you know, that profession of mainstream journalism, which I'm not, never would be... Um, I, they wouldn't want me. <laughs> I, I'm too outspoken. But like, part of the problem is that you know they're mostly white men. They're they're educated. They're very very detached from the community. They don't understand it. They don't try to understand it. And that's because they're objective journalists, which is a lie. Uh, because if you're reporting what officials say and not skeptically, you're not objective. You're biased. You're helping them. So uh, that's why I don't really have a problem being an activist journalist. Um, and I would call everybody an activist journalist. You're either doing it for power or you're challenging power. But I do have a mission. It's just been really hard. I, I talked to Senator Jill Carter about it a bit, which has to do with, you know, it's step one, but we absolutely have to get the investigation of police force out of the department. It's such a conflict of interest. In this case, 
the fourth investigation team was buddies, literal buddies, um, with many of the officers. Uh, Lieutenant Rice was allowed to go look at the video. They, he was the one who called the crime scene and told them to wait an hour. This ha- there needs to be like a cleanup of this process. And it is happening in other places. It's not perfect because then you still have law enforcement. Even It might be law enforcement um, from the attorney general's office. It might be a separate unit. A lot, even in Florida, even in Florida, we're actually uh, Baltimore's Joe Crystal now is working for the unit that gets sent out to investigate when there's police force. So that would just be step one. Ideally, there would be civilians involved in immediately, but the cops themselves need to just that whole department needs to be hands off of the investigation. And part of the problem is that um, there are actually criminal and administrative investigations. The criminal of force. So if somebody dies in police custody, there's a criminal investigation. Homicide used to do it. Now there's like the, the force investigation type squads, but they are supposed to be investigating them criminally. That is the fact. Who, what, where, when, who, what happened, who broke the law. And then there's the in-house administrative, which is internal affairs, which is just job performance. Did you violate any policies? Those are two blurry. And that's why cops are not getting charged so much as just fired, if anything. And so we need to clean up this whole process. We need to get the criminal investigation out of the department. And then I would just one other thing that has to happen is, you know, Lieutenant Rice had been flagged for years. You know, we have his internal affair file now. I mean, he knocked a kid unconscious before. He was a serial harasser of his ex-wife. Uh, drove drunk, had mental health breakdowns, like he should not have been on the street. And so obviously that process, those records should be public. Like they are in Chicago. We should see these people's records, some of them. And so those are the two things I would love to figure out how to advocate for. I feel like getting the Freddie Gray story out there will give me more leverage, you know? Boom. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pate of the People. We can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah. <sighs> Look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax. You booked a Verbo. 